Welcome to the Creditors Bargain Podcast. This is a show where I discuss corporate insolvency law with guests who are academics or practitioners from different jurisdictions. I'm your host, Akshaya Kamalnath, a senior lecturer at the Australian National University College of Law. My guest today is Professor Tony Casey, who's the Deputy Dean and Donald M. Ephraim Professor of Law and Economics and Faculty Director for the Center of Law and Finance at the University of Chicago Law School. We discuss his article, Chapter 11's Renegotiation Framework and the Purpose of Corporate Bankruptcy. I've added a link to this article in the show notes. Hi, Tony. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to talk about the new bargaining theory that you suggest in your article. But before we get to that, could you talk a little about the creditor's bargain theory and the Butner principle and where they fall short according to you? Sure. So thank you so much for having me. Um, I love kind of talking about bankruptcy, so it's great to be here to talk about it. Um, So to your question, as you know, the creditor's bargain theory is easily one of the most important developments in corporate bankruptcy scholarship. So in the 1980s, Thomas Jackson and Douglas Baird were working on answering the question of why we have corporate bankruptcy systems at all and what they should be doing. So as they saw it, creditors of a firm in financial distress have trouble coordinating their behavior. Each one wants to get paid in full and they have their own self-interest that they are pursuing that might hurt everyone else, right? They can't stop each other from tearing the firm apart. So that's a collective action problem. And Baird and Jackson said, bankruptcy law can solve that by creating special rules and procedures that force the creditors to coordinate their behavior. Now, the hard question is, what should those rules be? Baird and Jackson said, well, those rules should be exactly what we would expect the creditors to have agreed to themselves if they had bargained with each other before the firm went into distress, right? We want to write the rules that look like or mirror those rules that the creditors would have produced in that hypothetical ex-ante creditor's bargain. That's where it gets its name. We have this bargain that we imagine happened and we use those rules and that's bankruptcy law, right? That's the, the general theory. Now, there was pushback and one major version of pushback was to say, well, wait a second. If these are the rules the creditors would have wanted, why didn't they actually bargain for them, right? Why didn't they put them in a contract when they started doing business with the debtor? The creditor's bargain theorists answered back saying, most firms, the creditors of most firms are so numerous and they change so often over time that such an actual bargain is too costly to achieve, right? So the law should do it for them. Now, the Butner principle is a kind of follow-on or corollary to that idea. And it states that in creating this hypothetical bargain for the creditors, we should, the law should, as much as possible, preserve the rights or entitlements 
that exists when there's no bankruptcy. And one way to put that idea is we shouldn't allow our hypothetical bargain, our hypothetical creditor's bargain to undo the actual bargain the creditors entered into. And if we did, if we, if we did allow that disruption, we would distort their incentives outside of bankruptcy. And so those ideas, the Butner principle and the creditor's bargain theory were kind of the prevailing view, have been the prevailing view of bankruptcy over the last few decades. And they're a very useful way to think about many bankruptcy problems. You know, the core, there's a core group of issues that really fit into that theory, such as, you know, why do we have the automatic stay? Well, it forces general creditors to coordinate their behavior. But, you know, it falls short in other areas. And this is where my project kind of comes in is to, you know, identify these areas and then try to move past it. But most important, the most important area where the theory falls short is it doesn't cover a lot of the hard questions that we see in bankruptcy systems around the world today, like not, at least not in the large cases. And what I mean by that is if you look at major bankruptcy cases over the last 20 or so years, they're not about coordinating behavior among general creditors, right? That's not the main issue or dispute that's challenging the lawyers and the, and the courts. Rather, we see questions about the rights that exist between sophisticated banks who can bargain with each other or debtors using loopholes to in, in actual contracts to move assets around. Or maybe we're looking at a dispute about whether we should force a secured creditor to give up its contractual right to foreclose on collateral, right? Those are the fundamental bankruptcy questions that come up over and over again in cases today. And they don't fit nicely into a creditor's bargain framework because the parties could have and often did sit down at a bargaining table, hash things out or could have hashed things out and so it's hard to justify an idea in those cases that the drafters of a bankruptcy code, right, the lawmakers, are going to be able to write a hypothetical contract that's better than the ones the parties actually wrote themselves, right? So that's where you kind of say, well, this doesn't quite fit in these cases. General creditors, yeah, but we're talking about sophisticated creditors who have an agreement and the bankruptcy court's getting involved anyway. So they're, it's not really about writing a hypothetical contract. So that's, that's where it kind of, at least in my mind, I started to say this doesn't quite explain bankruptcy law. Mm. Yeah, I see what you mean. I'll ask you now something I've asked most guests on this podcast. Uh, what do you think the purpose of bankruptcy law should be? And I think your new bargaining theory can uh, be a good way to, uh, this is a good place to introduce your theory. Right. Yeah, I, I love that question. You know, I, when I teach bankruptcy, I'm always kind of like starting with, why do we have this? And as I just said, that was the question Baird and Jackson were asking in the 80s. So you know, we need to ask, the way I always frame it is, why do we have a special set of rules that apply when a debtor's in financial distress? And why do those rules sometimes trump contract and property rights that otherwise prevail. 
So the, the new bargaining theory uh, proposes an answer, as you say. And I want to be clear, I don't view it as a radical shift from the creditor's bargain. I think of it more as like an expansion or reworking to give the theory a little more explanatory power. Um, all right, so as I said earlier, the issue in a lot of these cases is not that the parties had trouble getting together to bargain for a contract, right? It's not that there were too many of them to get, the, the, to, get to the bargaining table. In, indeed, they often have contracts. The problem is that the contracts they want to write are impossible to write. Like, they could have all the time in the world, they could sit at the table with everyone who's relevant, and they wouldn't be able to write the contract they want. Now, what do I, I mean by that? When distress, financial distress hits, the debtor, we're talking about large firms here, you know, you know, we're not talking about individuals, that's a different theory of bankruptcy, but, but these are businesses. When financial distress hits a business, the debtor and its creditors become part of a vast web of thousands of relationships and thousands of competing rights. And those rights and relationship, relationships have to be resolved very quickly in an atmosphere with very limited information. There are so many possible contingencies when the debtor hits distress that it's hard to write down a contract ex ante that accounts for all of them. And it's even harder often to prove to a court that those contingencies have or have not arisen. And so as a result, any contract the parties write will be incomplete, either because it's impossible to write a contract that adequately accounts for financial distress, or it's impossible to enforce the contract you do write. And so when contracts are incomplete, when things that happen aren't accounted for in the agreements, people take advantage of each other. And this is a classic point in contract law is if, if we have loopholes, if we have incomplete provisions, people use those to do things that the parties never intended and they take advantage of that. So now here's the crucial point in my theory of the purpose of bankruptcy that differentiates it from the creditor's bargain because if, as I argue, the parties cannot write the necessary ex-ante contract, neither can the lawmakers, right? Neither can bankruptcy law, right? We can't say, hey, what we really want is to write a law that matches the perfect ex-ante contract. Because the reason we need that law is no one can write that perfect ex-ante contract. No one knows what it looks like. Another way to say it is you know, any law that fits the creditor's bargain theory because it writes that hypothetical contract is going to be just as incomplete as a private contract. And it's gonna be incomplete in the same way. It'll leave those same undefined contingencies uh, in the rules that it sets out. All right, so that's a wind up to the purpose of bankruptcy law is then like the idea of equity elsewhere in law, to have someone or something jump in and fix things when this incompleteness gets out of hand. When distress arises and we see that there is an incomplete contracting problem and it's being abused, people are taking advantage of each other, we want to stop that. So 
how does bankruptcy do that? When the parties are most likely to take advantage of it, they're incomplete contracts. Bankruptcy law allows, and this is at least the way chapter 11, I think works in a lot of systems around the world, they allow judicially administrated guardrails to be put in place to limit that advantage taking, right? Bankruptcy law says to someone, just because you have a piece of paper in your hand that says you get to destroy everyone else's value. That's what your contract says. That's the piece of paper. Just because you have that doesn't necessarily mean you get to do it, right? We're going to put guardrails in place and they're going to stop you from doing that. Why do we do that? Why do we need those guardrails? Well, the system needs them. The markets need them because otherwise parties won't trust each other at the beginning of things. No one will enter into a contract or do business with someone else knowing that everyone involved is going to take advantage of each other at the end of the day. So bankruptcy law, its main purpose is to create a system where the parties know up front that when that distress hits, the worst opportunistic behavior will be stopped. Even if it's technically allowed, the court's going to stop the worst behavior, right? And because we know it does that, we're more comfortable entering into our agreements on the front end. So what, what happens now in this theory to the uh, Butner principle and the non-bankruptcy entitlements? Sure. And this is where I think a lot of like the creditors bargain theorists um, disagree with my view of things, right? This, they they think that I kind of veer off when I talk about Butner. So the big problem I see with the Butner principle is that it puts too much emphasis on non-bankruptcy rights, right? We sometimes need to ignore those rights to achieve bankruptcy's purpose. And if you really think about it, bankruptcy law does one thing. It interferes with non-bankruptcy rights. The question is just how much should it do that and when should it do it? And so if you say non-bankruptcy rights are kind of extra important, all you're doing is saying do less bankruptcy law. You're putting a limit on it. You're not giving a direction for what it should do. So to be clear, I'm, I don't want to say non-bankruptcy rights are unimportant or should be ignored, just that they should be de-emphasized. Right? Bankruptcy law really, you know, the purpose that I just laid out, really requires um, a balancing. Right? We're trying to prevent the parties from using incomplete contracts that take advantage of each other when the debtor's in distress. And if we don't do that, as I said, no one's going to want to enter into relationships in the first place. But on the flip side, you can also imagine parties taking advantage of the solution of bankruptcy to you know, extract value. So if bankruptcy law totally ignored non-bankruptcy rights, you would see debtors filing for bankruptcy just because they don't like the contract they're in, right? I don't want to pay. I'm going into bankruptcy. I get out of everything. You just had a, you, know, you're, you enter bankruptcy, you're free. That rule allows too much on the other side. The debtor takes advantage of our 
kind of interference with non-bankruptcy rights. So we really need to balance. So, so my version of Butner would be, you, know, you really look at the costs of changing the non-bankruptcy rules and the costs of not changing them. The cost of changing them is distortions to incentives outside of bankruptcy. The cost of not changing them is people taking advantage of each other when distress arises. And in some cases, you're going to say, you know, we want to preserve the rights. And in others, you'll say, no, here we're going to interfere a little bit, uh, put up a guardrail and say, you can't exercise that contract term the way you would otherwise be allowed to. So if this balance has to be implemented ex post, you would say the courts do this? Yeah, so uh, exactly, right? The courts, at the, they look at what's going on now that we're in distress and they say, all right, you know, you're trying to do something. Is this one of those things that I know parties do when they're trying to take advantage of an of a incomplete contract? I'm not gonna let you do that. Or is this one of those things where someone's taking advantage of the technical terms in the bankruptcy code? I'm not gonna allow that either, right? We have these texts, the contracts, the code, and those guide us. But when you start using those to tear the firm apart or threaten to tear the firm apart, we're gonna put in place these guardrails to stop that. Mm. So another claim you make in your article, you call that the descriptive claim that chapter 11 already uh, has implements the new bargaining theory. So can you give us some examples to show that? Sure, yeah, I think it's throughout the code. You find the, the core provisions have this flavor, this balancing flavor to it. They, the code says, we're gonna suspend a non-bankruptcy right, but only if, you pay a certain price that proves that you know, you're acting of faith or you do a market test or you, you reach some evidentiary burden, then we'll suspend the non-bankruptcy right. And we're putting in place the, what I, like these guardrails to say, you can do it, but only if certain things are true. So the most obvious example is the way bankruptcy law treats the enforcement rights of creditors, right? And so this comes up in the idea of cram down. Um, so I'll talk about the enforcement rights of uh, security interests. You know, but there, outside of bankruptcy, when a debtor is in default, a secured creditor can foreclose on its collateral. It can essentially take away part of the firm, right? The firm has a factory. I'm a secured creditor. You've defaulted. It's my factory now. Now, outside of bankruptcy, the creditor is allowed to do that, even if doing so destroys the debtor's business and harms all the other creditors and stakeholders. And it's a contractual right. That's a non-bankruptcy right that it has. And that creditor will use that threat to extract value. Chapter 11 says, hold on a second. You know, consistent with the theory that I put forward, it says, you can only do that sometimes. We're going to put in place a guardrail that stops you from that foreclosure. The first version of that guardrail is the automatic stay. The second version is in a confirmation of a plan. The debtor might say, you're never going to get the asset back. I'm going to give you something else, right? And so 
you don't get to foreclose because you could take advantage of that right and extract value. On the other side though, if the debtor can file for bankruptcy, keep the collateral and not pay for it, the debtor can use the threat of bankruptcy to extract value from all the stakeholders as well. So on this side, the bankruptcy law puts in place, chapter 11 that is, puts in place another guardrail. The first guardrail on one side is the creditor can't foreclose. The second guardrail on the other side is, well, the creditor can't foreclose if the debtor gives the creditor a new promise of payment with market terms, or it has a market test, or, and this is the language the code, the chapter 11 uses, it, the debtor proves to the court that what it's giving the creditor is the indubitable equivalent of the collateral. Now, indubitable equivalent is a very high standard. So basically the code is saying, or the bankruptcy law in chapter 11 is saying, we're suspending this right because the creditor might take advantage of it. But the debtor, but the, but the creditor gets that right back unless the debtor either proves to us that they're going to pay that creditor what they're owed through this promise of payment or gives the creditor something else. Now, we're very skeptical when you give the creditor something else. So you need to prove to us beyond a doubt that that's something else is the equivalent of their being able to take their asset. And so the court and the bankruptcy code is balancing. And so you know, note that the, the law as written has these language like indubitable equivalent and you know, talks about new terms and market tests. The judge has to uh, operationalize that and say, this is what it means. And so the judge puts a guardrail on one side and a guardrail on another, and that prevents the worst of the advantage taking. It's not perfect. There'll be a range in the middle where the judge is like, I don't know, well, I'll just allow the contracts to play out. But when someone's trying to do something too extreme, no, you can't do that. And as I talk about in the paper, you can go throughout the code and look at executory contracts, critical vendor orders, they all have a similar guardrail feature to them. So I know your paper has spoken mostly about um, chapter 11, but as I'm listening to you, I'm wondering if you think this would apply to smaller firm bankruptcies as well? Yeah, so I think in, in, in theory, yes, absolutely. I only hesitate because Smaller firm bankruptcies might, well, I'll back up. No, it certainly does apply, but it applies, it plays out a little differently. Um, smaller firm bankruptcies have features very different than mega cases. And for example, the, you, often you'll have a single owner or founder of a firm who you know, was the vision of the small firm, the small business, it's a restaurant, it's, you know, a local shop, and their human capital is worth quite a lot. That creates a different form of advantage taking, right? And you, you have them playing a role where they've got their equity, they've also got their contribution um, in, in human capital, and now the creditors are working through distress where you 
have to figure out what to do with both the financial claims, but also the role of the founder or, or um, uh, man, you know, the managing owner. And that's why, you know, chapter 11 recently uh, was amended to add, you know, the small business uh, amendments and they allow a different take on priority that will sometimes keep that manager around. And so what's going on there is you're saying it's slightly different landscape. And after over time, we realized that the strict priority rule that applied in the mega cases wasn't working here, right? We were controlling a different type of advantage taking across the board. Well, we were controlling advantage taking across the board, but it looked different. So the new provisions allow for a, a different reorganization plan and different tests over time. And there's kind of time limits and that sort of thing. So it, it plays out differently, but it's still the same idea where you're trying to make sure you don't allow either side to go too far. And, and one other thing I'll notice about, I'll, I'll note about small businesses, when you have a single shareholder and a single manager, the filing decision is very important. Right? And people have talked about this, credit bargain theorists have talked about this since uh, my colleague Randy Picker in the 1990s. Um, there's a, a real dilemma when you wanna make sure that the person who makes the filing decision has the right incentives. And in the US, they've created essentially, you know, it's the debtor management who decides. Involuntary bankruptcy is pretty rare. Um, and you, you, you wanna make sure they'll file for bankruptcy when they need to. Now, one way to do that is to make sure that what happens after they file isn't too onerous, too burdensome on them. And so, again, you're trying to balance the, the, the issues here because if, if you make it that filing bankruptcy is the worst possible outcome, they won't do it until the very last minute or you'll wait till an involuntary. And the bankruptcy code in chapter 11 and the new amendments take into account that, that problem of balancing. We don't wanna give them everything and have them give them an incentive to take on too much risk. We also don't wanna give them an incentive to never file for bankruptcy. That's, that's useful. I was thinking about, we have the small business bankruptcy debate going on in Australia right now, and that's why I thought of it. So that's super useful. Uh, but coming back to your article, towards the end, you, you make a statement about how it's really important to have a competitive uh, bankrupt, competitive bankruptcy judges. So I was wondering, and also our conversation today, it sounds like the judges play a really important role. Um, it almost sounded like a Delaware system, uh, the way you explained. Uh, so do you think, um, in ideally, if you were to talk about uh, setting up a bankruptcy framework in a country that's trying to overhaul everything, uh, what would the role of the uh, judiciary be? Yeah, judges are, super important to this theory. Um, that's absolutely right. You know, like I said before, things like indubitable equivalent, market terms, like those have to have ex post meaning put on them, right? That's why we need this system because it's hard to contract for that five years in advance. You don't know what the indubitable equivalent will be. So you put in place this term and it lets the judge kind of 
balance things and put the guardrails where he or she thinks they belong. Now, that is a hard thing to do and it, there's no precise answer. So under the new bargaining theory and in chapter 11 as it stands, judges are and, and have to be constantly balancing things. Now, while chapter 11 doesn't require judges to pinpoint a precise answer, it does require them to set a range of acceptable behavior where advantage taking is minimized. Right? That's what the guardrails are doing. The judges set outer bounds. They're not gonna say, here, I know exactly what the right answer is, but I know certain things that are the wrong answer. And those aren't allowed unless you can bring new evidence or, or new market tests in front of me. So everyone's given a little bit of room to maneuver and play out their non-bankruptcy rights, but the judges step in when they veer too far in one direction. And when it becomes obvious that they're threatening the success of the firm in order to extract value. But not every judge will be good at this. And perhaps most judges won't be good at this. And so it helps to have a system where the judges either come from the bankruptcy world, they've, they've done this, they know what's going on, or they're at least specialist judges who hear the same types of cases over and over again, and they get mentored by other judges, mentored by other judges who've heard the same cases over and over again. And they start to get a, you know, like a sixth sense, sixth sense for you know, when certain behavior is hitting the guardrails. And you need that because otherwise, you know, like people talk about courts of equity, courts of equity can be great if the judges understand the role and when they need to step in and when they need to step back. But it, you know, in, in the bad case, courts of equity are just judges doing what they feel is right. That's not the right system, right? That's, that's just, you know, at the end of the day, we'll let someone decide what should have happened. That disrupts everyone's interests and that goes to the going too far to disrupt non-bankruptcy rights. You need someone who really understands why and when they should intervene. And, you know, the U.S. has uh, a specialty bankruptcy court and then even within the system, you kind of alluded to it when you mentioned Delaware, you know, most major cases in the U.S., you know, like the mega bankruptcies, are filed in you know, three courts. There's the, Delaware the bankruptcy court in the Delaware District Court, within the Delaware District, the bankruptcy court in the Southern District of New York, and the bankruptcy court more recently in the Southern District of Texas. And those judges, by virtue of having the volume of cases become really expert at deciding those cases and understanding, you know, what, where the pressure points are. Other judges in other districts hear a lot of cases and are also very good at this, but they might not hear quite as many. And the reverse is they might hear more individual chapter 13s and be more expert at that, where a Delaware bankruptcy judge might be more expert at a, a large chapter 11. But they're all going to know this better than a generalist judge, a district court judge, or some a judge in a different court. And so that that's really important. And as I look around the world, I do think if if you're when designing a system, recognizing the importance of judges who understand this role, this guardrail role, 
is really important. And so, you know, if I was advising a, a legislature in a country that was adopting a new system, I would urge them to consider, you know, repeat player judges, either specialists or, you know, these cases go to this generalist judge who then becomes a, a semi-specialist. I, you know, one thing I'll add is there's a recent high profile case in the US. There's actually a bunch of high profile cases where the judges have approved complex settlements. And the most recent one is the um, Purdue Pharma bankruptcy. And it deals with this kind of controversial question of third party releases, which you know, deal with claims that one creditor or one stakeholder has against another. And the judges approve settlement plans that force parties to give up their claims and force them into settlements. Now, in, in the, the bankruptcy judge in the pharma case, he proved that it was very controversial, but he's only doing it where he sees that the parties that are being forced to come along are getting fair, what he deems fair compensation. And he's only doing it because he's worried that a small group of holdouts might be threatening the welfare of the large group of, of creditors and victims. A group that, in that case and in similar cases, overwhelmingly want the settlement. So we've got a large group that says, we want to go along. We've got compensation for the group that's being forced to come along. And the judge says, I'm an expert at this. I've done this. I have a sense that this is the best deal. And this is the best way to preserve value to kind of bring these holdouts along, but only with a market test that, you know, kind of proved to me that they're getting compensation. And when you do that, that is, if the judge is truly an expert at this and getting that balancing right, that's a perfect example of what the new bargaining theory is supposed to do and where it really differs from the creditor's bargain theory. Because the creditor's bargain theorists would look at that and say, you know, you're really interfering with non-bankruptcy rights. But a new bargaining theorist would say, yeah, but I'm doing it because it's the only way to resolve this without just destroying value across the board. And so that's, that's where the difference is. But you see, it really relies on that judge. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I do think the judge in that case is getting it right but it really relies on him getting that balancing right or, or it doesn't work. That's super useful. Thank you so much. I was thinking specifically about India when I asked the question because there have been specialized courts, but I think it's company law and bankruptcy law uh, courts put together and I think it still needs to mature a bit. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I spent a little time there looking at it and I know that you know, the, the bankruptcy code there, you know, it evolved, it was, you know, the law evolved, you saw problems, you, you get a new code in place. And then and if you look at the amendments and kind of back and forth over the last few years, it's been, I think, you know, recognizing, oh, we put the guardrail in the wrong place. Oh, we need to put a new one in place. And as I understand it, sometimes the judges did things that I don't think the people who wrote the legislation were intending for them to do. And so then you had to kind of rein them in and, and perhaps amend and send messages to say, well, that's not quite what this is intended for. Um, and I imagine the reason why they might have had that issue is they're, they're not pure kind of specialists. They are, as you yeah. say, like they have other 
general expertise and it's a new code. So they're all, everyone's learning when you have a, a new code, you know, that's only been around five years. Yeah. Yeah, and, and thank you for this. I really enjoyed reading the paper because specifically thinking about these sorts of cases you were discussing about India, I often fell short while thinking of the creditor's bargain theory. It brings us to a point then doesn't really help. So this is going to be really useful for me to think about. Um, yeah, one of, the more, one of the most fancy, fascinating things, I think the difference between the current India bankruptcy code and US is you know, that all that stuff I said about debtor in possession and filing, mm. it's flipped, right? So you have a creditor yeah. in possession idea and you're going to need different guardrails when a different person is controlling the show at, when after, you know, so, so I guess in India, like the debtor, the management files, but then control gets handed over in the U S management files and keeps control. That's a totally different dynamic. Neither one's right or wrong, but you're going to need different guardrails in, in those two systems because they are very different. They look very different in how they play out. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks again for this uh, joining me today. Great. Thank you so much for having me. This is great.